This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Walensky. We're talking about books, about theater, about film, and sometimes about politics. Frank Alotti, the Tony Award-winning director, an Oscar-nominated screenwriter, and giant of the Chicago theater scene, died on January 2nd, 2023, at the age of 79. With a Ph.D. in literary studies and a longtime member of Chicago's legendary Steppenwolf Theatre Company, Frank Galati was also known for adapting several novels for the theatre, most notably Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath. I had a chance to sit down with Frank Galati on May 22, 2019, while he was preparing Eugene Ionesco's masterpiece Rhinoceros, for a San Francisco production at American Conservatory Theater, ACT. The production took on new urgency and immediacy at the time as a major work of anti-fascism during the second two years of Trump's presidency. This interview was first posted as a Bay Area Theater podcast in June 2019. Frank Galati, before I turn the microphone on, we were talking about this bizarre American film theater film of Rhinoceros by Ionesco with Zero Mostel and uh, Gene Wilder, which on the surface, since both of them have some familiarity with material, you'd figure would be great. And it was horrible. And you began describing exactly what Rhinoceros was and is, and the fact that this film completely ignored that. Yeah, the film is a broad farce full of sight gags and absurd twists that are meant to delight and entertain. But in spite of Gene Wilder's sweet, sad sack characterization and Zero Mostel's outrageous interpretation of a man who transforms himself into a rhinoceros. There's also Karen Black in the role of Daisy, which is a role that is much more fully detailed and fleshed out in the actual play. But I think what's noteworthy is that, as I suppose is typical to a certain extent of Hollywood, this text, this primary text, was turned into a silly farce that seemed to have no purpose other than to be bizarre and broadly comic. But the work itself has a deep literary tradition going all the way back, really, to the late 1930s. Ionesco, a Romanian playwright who was educated in France, whose first language was French, was an artist to the core, someone whose own passion for his inner life and for expressing his inner life was what motivated him to create a work like Rhinoceros, which was written in the shadow of fascism in Europe. So 
when the play was first presented, it was presented at the Champs-Élysées in Paris, and the leading actor was Jean-Louis Barrault. When it went to London, where it was directed by Peter Brook, the role of Barringer, not the Zero Mustel role, the hero. Zero Mustel is not the hero. He's the antagonist. But Barringer, the hero, in that production in London, was played by Laurence Olivier. And when the show went to Broadway, it starred Zero Mustel and Eli Wallach. And it was meticulously and carefully directed. But anyway, this is all by way of saying that the play is situated in a historical and literary context that is really profoundly important. What I noticed in reading up on the play was how, despite the absurd idea of people turning into rhinoceroses, rhinoceri, rhinos, (laughs) the actual background of the play is almost hyper-realistic. It's like if you substituted the word fascist, for instance, for rhinoceros, you would have a completely different play. I I suspect that by making it the rhino, that opened the door to absurdist interpretations. And probably, I interviewed Peter Brook a couple of years ago. Most, Yeah. Most likely, he was brought in because he could find a way to interact the absurdity with the reality, maybe better than any other director. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I think the challenge of the play is to find reality and truth of character and action in what seems like a fairy tale, a myth, almost a joke. The word absurd is applied by Martin Eslam and his book, The Theater of the Absurd, was a collection of essays that identified Ionesco as a prime mover in what he called the theater of the absurd. Now, it's a long story, and the story really does begin in the pre-war years in Europe, even before World War I when after Freud, after Darwin, after all of the intellectual titans of the 19th century, now all of a sudden the world and the inner life of the human being is cracked open. And Stravinsky reflects it in his Rite of Spring and other musical forms. Picasso was dismantling the human figure. And Picasso, who was six years old when there was a terrible earthquake in Malaga, always said he he was six years old. His father was 
carrying him through the streets as this earthquake was dismantling the city. And Picasso never forgot these cubes, this rubble, the detritus of our and human surface, and so on. So there were profound shudders going on before even World War I. Then, in the aftermath of the Holocaust, Inesco writes Rhinoceros in the late 50s, and he's looking back at his childhood at a time when Europe is being infected by the disease of Nazism, of fascism. And infection, the idea of a malady, which is a a kind of epic, epidemic, is exactly what Ionesco is talking about. One of the principal burning issues in the play, Rhinoceros, is propaganda. So that the wave of contagion is a result in Ionesco's own personal life of the fact that when he was a young man in France, he and his girlfriend who became his wife and a circle of friends, they were all succumbing to the propaganda of the Nazis. And Ionesco couldn't believe it. My friend is an intellectual. My friend is a scientist. My friend is a poet. My friend is my girlfriend. They're all becoming rhinoceroses. Well, he also was of a Sephardic Jewish family that had converted. So on some level, because of genetic background, he almost had an immunity gene. The fact that he was always going to be, quote, Jewish, even though he wasn't. Uh Uh-huh. Interesting. It's very interesting. I guess I'm not thinking, and I'm I'm not sure the play is thinking as much about genetics or ethnicity as about politics. The only reason I bring it up is because whenever you have a pogrom, all of the people who aren't part of it can succumb. But if you're inside of it on some level, and it's not a question of religion or even ethnicity in this case, it's you know, a piece of paper that says who your grandparents are, great-grandparents. Right, I see, yes. Absolutely. And, of course, one of the mysteries of theater art, and certainly true of this piece, is that it asks the audience to tolerate ambiguity. And at the end of the play, Barringer, our hero, equivocates and at the very last minute briefly he longs for the green skin and the horns and the bulk 
and the passion of the animal that is the rhinoceros, the terrifying monster. But then that vanishes. At first he says, I can't stand this white skin. I, I'm ugly. I want to have a horn. But when his real soul clicks into place, he realizes he's a human being and he values being a human being. And he will not, as he says at the end, capitulate. That's the word in the translation. Why did Ionesco make him an alcoholic at the beginning? Partly because Ionesco himself was often in a fog of alcohol. Uh, not that he was an alcoholic per se. I don't know if he was. But he finds in the anesthetized hero a doppelganger, a shadow of himself. He is a, you know, this is going to sound too gloomy for the theater, but he is, um, let's put it this way, he was manic depressive. He had moments that he accounts in his journals that were full of the joy of life. He loved nothing more than those summers he spent in France. He was a happy boy. He was buoyant. He was alive. He was sexual. He was romantic, lyrical, all those things. But he was profoundly depressed. And that alcoholism in the character is, you know what? I think it's the existential malaise that, you know, was the post-war zeitgeist. He was terrified of death. At one point in the play, Berenger says, there are more dead people than there are living. There's an example of the logic. Why do you think he picked rhinoceros? It feels like it's more than just, I'm picking an animal. Yeah. He wrote a short story. And as a little parable of fiction, the outrageousness of a rhinoceros arriving in the middle of town. It's not unlike Kafka's metamorphosis. He wakes up in the morning to discover he's turned into a cockroach. But what is his primary concern? He's going to be late for work. Hello. And why a rhinoceros? I make a link between the sensibility in Ionesco and his soul and Yeats and his second coming. When in talking about the dawn of the next epoch, he says, what rough beast its hour come round at last slouches towards Bethlehem to be born. 
was breeding Yates. Then. Well, I'm sure he did. Yeah. I'm sure he did. Is this a new translation? No, it's the only authorized translation in English. The Ionesco estate has been very generous with me and with both the Oslo Theater, where this production began, and with ACT. And the generosity I'm referring to, they gave me permission to edit and reconfigure portions of the text. So what seems long-winded, I think, in the film, among other things, is, I think, more efficiently arrived at. I think the cutting of some of the characters, some of the secondary characters, the logician, the philosopher, the grocer, the housewife, these supernumeraries whose function is to reiterate and repeat and reiterate and repeat the issues, philosophical, moral, political, that are in the play. There's a good deal of revolving repetition. And by editing it, I think it has more velocity. It charges towards its end. We've also rearranged the acts so that we're playing Act 1, Scene 1, and Act 1, Scene 2. The first is a street scene. The second is an office scene before the intermission. Then after the intermission are the two bedroom scenes. Eugene, the Zero Mostel character, we're calling Eugene, Eugene's transformation takes place in that scene at the beginning of our act two. And then the final scene is Barringer's confrontation with Dudard, his office antagonist, and Daisy, his love interest. Why the change of the name from Jean to Eugene? Because Eugene is the author's name. Well, I, I know that, but <laughs> but given That's, the fact that, that Berenger well, is the author. <laughs> well, yeah, Berenger is the author in the work, but Berenger means every man. And Berenger is the hero of at least three Ionesco plays. I mean, we kept some of the French nominations, but some of them we changed rhythmically, We've taken the translation with their permission and somewhat updated the language so that it doesn't seem quaint or precious. Obviously, in our discussion, and we're dealing with Trump world in 2019, it seems to me that there could be, and I'm not sure if it's a mistake or not, taking rhinoceros and putting it almost too on the nose politically? Or are you trying to put it too on the nose? No, no, I'm trying to do the play. 
And the play is not on the nose. The play does not take sides. It is not a rhetorical argument for a particular point of view. What it is, is an exploration of the discourse of dissent and of the ever-unfolding debate that politicians, philosophers, thinkers, scientists, if anything, the crisis in the play is moral. So it's up to the audience to decide whose side they're on. And maybe they'll decide that the rhinoceros is what they want to be. Frank Galante, you've directed several plays in different areas, musicals, in particular Ragtime, which I saw in that original production. Actually, I saw it in L.A. before it came to New York. Oh, yes. Loved it. I loved that production in L.A. I loved the cast. When you're looking at a play like Rhinoceros and you're looking at a play like Ragtime, are you able to divorce yourself so much that each play is totally unique to it? Or do you see some way that there's a Frank Galati gloss on some level? Well, I hope it's not gloss. Well, you know what I mean. uh, I do know what you mean, yes. You know, they seem, perhaps, Rhinoceros and Ragtime, to be completely different. And in terms of mode, yeah, musical as opposed to comedy, although we have musical events in our production of Rhinoceros. But you know what? They're both about history. They're about the larger narrative of the human journey. And there is as much moral integrity in ragtime, because ragtime is is about three communities that find themselves in conflict with one another. And this is something that Dr. O so brilliantly achieves by weaving in and out real historical characters, Booker T. Washington, Emma Goldman, Harry Houdini, Evelyn Nesbitt, all of those historical characters that appear in Ragtime intersect with the fictional families. And you could say that each one of these theatrical constructs is a moral tale. What I noticed, particularly in the opening of Ragtime, making the three groups interweave with each other and separate out on stage in a kind of choreography, it's almost a metaphor for what we're going to see later on. That's right. In something like Rhinoceros, are you doing anything like that, or is it more straightforward? Because the play itself is so metaphorical. Again, this is complicated and hard to get the mind around, but you could say that Rhinoceros arrives on the world stage 
in an environment, a theatrical environment, which is boulevard comedy. That's what was playing on the Champs-Élysées, the comedies and farces on Broadway and London stages. That was typical. Rhinoceros dismantles those expectations. What's typical is dismantled by the play. So in our production, we are starting with a boulevard comedy so that it's drop and wing, footlights, curtain up, phony scenery, dapper costumes, rapid-fire dialogue, and then the theme, I just can't get used to life. I just can't get used to it. That's what Berenger says. And Eugene says, everybody has to get used to it. Everybody has to go to work. Everybody has got the same problems. As Dudard says to him later in the play, you know, you're not the center of the universe, you know. So when that starts to happen, there's a crack in the boulevard comedy format. And we begin to remove those elements that are typical of theatrical comedy. The drop goes away. The scenery changes. A rhinoceros gets into the first floor of an office building and tears the whole office staircase, crashes into it. Then we start moving into a realm of dream, of nightmare, of terror all of which reflects both this manic-depressive inner life and the terror of the outside world, whatever it is, the shadow of fascism or tyranny in our own country. Frank Galati, let's move on. I think people underestimate a little bit about the importance of the Chicago art scene to theater in general. Yeah, it's been remarkable over the last 20 or so years how a kind of renaissance, which is entirely local, has had reverberations nationally and even internationally, which I think has been something of a surprise to many of us who toiled for so long in the Chicago theater. It's a combination of an appetite for really trenchant entertainment to enjoy the power and the passion and the depth of the experience of going to the theater So Steppenwolf, which started in the basement of a church in Highland Park, Illinois, evolved into a company of artists 
including John Malkovich, Joan Allen, John Mahoney, Rondi Reed, Tina Landau, Kevin Anderson, Tom Snyder. It's a roster of extraordinary now film and stage actors. Laurie Metcalf, recently nominated for her work on Broadway, twice just in the last two seasons. Tracy Lutz is a Steppenwolf ensemble member, and yes, uh, August Osage County was written for the Steppenwolf Ensemble. And the Goodman Theater has been a kind of pioneer in the regional theater movement. The work that's been done at the Goodman by Bob Falls, work which has gone to Broadway, a lot of Arthur Miller, Tennessee Williams. The Chicago community rallied around the arts and particularly theater arts with just tremendous support. So the Goodman Theater is well-funded and is able to do some very bold, very experimental productions. Now, in addition to Steppenwolf and the Goodman, there's the Chicago Shakespeare Theater, which is run by Barbara Gaines, who is a lifelong interpreter of Shakespeare. And she built a theater out on a Navy Pier, a beautiful setting. And like the Goodman and Steppenwolf, the community in Chicago rallies around these arts organizations and gives them financial and emotional support. You began, I guess, as most directors did, as an actor. Is that correct? That's right, yeah. You have a master's, I think, in speech? I do have a master's in uh, interpretation, is what it was called in those years, and a PhD in literary studies. How did you get involved in directing and... Was it that acting wasn't quite your thing? Because you continue to act. Yeah, I have up until fairly recently. But the beginning of my directing impulse now, after many years of thinking back on it, was uh, when I was in grammar school and my sister had to put on some kind of little play with her friends. So it was like four girls who were friends of my sister. I remember saying, oh, I think you should have a fish. We'll put a fish on a stick and it'll float and you'll be in the... I don't know where it came from. It was just a twitch. A kind of like, oh, you could do this kind of thing. And then in high school, I began to act in plays and musicals, and then in college. And I had some remarkable teachers, teachers of performance, teachers of Shakespeare, of fiction, in performance, 
and acting. We, we had a very highly revered acting teacher at Northwestern where I studied and taught for 40 years named Elvina Krauss. She was an old school, you know, almost school marmish kind of strict, you know, with a bun in the back of her head and a couple of pencils stuck in her hair. And she was tough and she was uncompromising. She demanded that you be honest, that you be true. I can still hear her barking from the audience. Don't fake. Don't fake. Grounded in that, which was consonant with the Steppenwolf aesthetic as it was evolving at that time. In fact, we had some of the same teachers. My high school teacher went on to teach at Illinois State, and that was where Malkovich, Laurie Metcalf, Randy Reed, uh, Randy Arney, Rick Snyder, they were all students of my high school teacher. And they knew this woman I'm referring to. And they knew that, you know, people call us the sort of rock and roll theater. Only rock and roll in the sense that it's down to earth pumping with energy, and sometimes brutal. You've never directed a film, but you have written several screenplays. What interested me about writing screenplays was because I was so familiar with adapting narrative. I could make all kinds of choices in terms of storytelling that were tremendously interesting. I mean, I just loved it. And directing film, I never wanted to. Two plays I'd like to ask you about, just just my own interests. Uh, <laughs> one of them is that you directed an early production of uh, Homebody Kabul. I did. You worked very closely, I assume, with Tony, Tony Kushner. Yes, I did. On that one, it struck me that that opening monologue was so brilliant yeah. that it cre almost created a problem because nothing afterward could ever measure up to yeah. that. Yeah, you certainly put your finger on the main challenge of the play. And I did work very closely with Tony, and I worship him. I think he's a genius. However, his wish structurally was always that the monologue, which is about an hour, it's 55, depends on the performance. He wanted that to be scene one of act one. And he wanted to make a transition into scene two, which takes place in Kabul for the second half of the first act, then two more long scenes thereafter. A lot to ask. Fascinating, brilliant writing, dazzling uh, intellectual energy and, and probing 
thought about identity, sexuality, power, uh, and constellated in the character of Homebody herself, who's only named Homebody, who is a British woman of a certain age whose family gets caught up and catches her up in a journey to understand Afghanistan. Daunting. And of course, we didn't solve it. But I did have both Linda Eman in uh, L.A. and in New York, and I had Amy Morton in Chicago. The other play I wanted to ask you about was you directed a version of Candor and Ebb's The Visit. I I think that went to Broadway briefly uh, with Cheetah Rivera. Did it not work? What was the problem with it? Well, it's a problematic piece. We did it first at the Goodman Theater. In fact, it was the week of September 11th. Cheetah was in it, and a wonderful, wonderful cast. And both Cantor and Ebb were there the whole time. It was a thrill to get to work with them, to know them. And also Cheetah, who was just a consummate artist. And Terrence McNally, who did the book. Okay, so it was the victim, to a certain extent, of the 9-11 tragedy because no one flew and no one would come from New York to Chicago while the show was running to see it for the purposes of a Broadway production. So it folded its tent, went away, Anne Ryan King, by the way, was the choreographer, and she was spectacular. I adored her. Then a producer got involved, and it was done at Williamstown with John Doyle directing. I didn't see it. I heard good things about it, and then that went away as well. Then, lo and behold, it turns out that it's going to be on Broadway. Well, somewhere in there, Ebb died. Yes, yes, that's right. Fred died. That had a big effect on the show in many ways because Fred was the mind and John is the heart. So there were missing elements. John took over with the help of an associate lyricist and added a couple of numbers. Anyway, they chose John Doyle to take it to Broadway. There was another step. We played, before the Williamstown, we played at the Signature Theater in Washington where it was really quite a hit. Everyone loved her and found it. It was, well, it was a much better production than the one we had done at at the Goodman. And then I just heard that they were doing it on Broadway. 
So, <laughs> you know. But it didn't make it. So. No, it didn't. One final question. You also directed in 2006, you directed uh, a musical called Loving Repeating, yes. and I have the CD. I love that score. Oh, I'm thrilled to hear <laughs> you say that. I love it, too. It is a beautiful little piece. You haven't seen it. By no, any no. I've been trying to get it's, somebody to produce it. Oh, here. yeah. It, it, it is so charming and so unusual. It's all Gertrude Stein text and Stephen Flaherty's music. And it's the only time Stephen Flaherty has worked with anyone other than Lynn Aarons. I love it. Not to be boastful. Frank Galati. One final question. What do you have going on after Rhinoceros? I'm adapting and directing a musical with Stephen Flaherty and Lynn Ahrens, creators of Ragtime. And it's an adaptation of A Death in the Family by James A.G. And the creative team is all together. We're having a workshop in uh, three weeks. The musical Knoxville, based on a death in the family with libretto and direction by Frank Galati, had its world premiere at the Asolo Repertory Theater in Sarasota, Florida in April 2022. Thus far, there's no mention of a Broadway opening. An original cast album was released in November 2022. You've been listening to an interview with the late theater director Frank Galati who died on January 2, 2023, at the age of 79. The interview was recorded in the offices of the American Conservatory Theater, ACT, in San Francisco on May 22, 2019, as he was in preparation to direct a production of Eugene Ionesco's classic anti-fascist absurdist play, Rhinoceros. Feedback on this and other Radio Walensky podcasts is appreciated. You can write to bookwaves at hotmail.com and feel free to search out other interviews at bookwaves.com or on the kpfa.org website. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast.